So for some of our trickier patients, he suggested, why don't we start this guy on a keto diet? Of course, my first reaction, given my training was, what are you crazy? I don't want to kill the guy. You know, that was how I was trained. But luckily he pushed back and said, well, have you like read about it? Have you done research about it? I said, well, no, I'm just sort of being a parrot and saying what I was taught. So I dug into it and boy, was I surprised. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Welcome back to the Better with Dr. Stephanie podcast. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I have a conversation with Dr. Brett Scher, all about lipids, heart health, cardiovascular disease, the labs that you should be looking at, and all the nuance that you might imagine in a conversation with a cardiologist. So Dr. Uh, Brett is a board certified cardiologist, as I mentioned, he's a lipidologist practicing in San Diego, and he's also licensed to practice in seven states in the US. He is the medical director for the Diet Doctor and also is the host, the podcast host of the Diet Doctor podcast. He also has several specialized certifications in functional medicine, nutrition, personal training, and behavioral modification. So what did we talk about today? Well, we talked about the traditional allopathic care model around lipids and how we may have gone astray. And then we get into the weeds around LDLs, HDLs, cholesterol, LP little a, LDL particle number, labs, optimized labs, all the juicy, nerdy stuff that I absolutely love. And then we layered on that, of course, how uh, a ketogenic diet might actually, shocker, improve some of these lipid levels. And what are some of the initial observations that one might see when we are first starting out a ketogenic diet? So we talk about uh, the clinical markers of cardiovascular health, ideal labs, as I mentioned, pattern A and pattern D, uh, pattern B of LDL particles, how we might actually transmutate from one to the other. We talk about saturated fat and LDL, uh, an LDL number. We talk about HDLs. We talk about labs, LP little a, uh, all of the things that I think that you are going to find really, really interesting. If you are someone who has ever tried a low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet, and someone has said to you, but what about your cholesterol? Oh, you're going to have a heart attack. And maybe that, um, maybe that conversation or that communication has come from your primary care physician, this is going to be an incredibly useful podcast to arm you with information that unfortunately, highly unlikely uh, that your MD or your PCP has been taught in school. So please enjoy without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brett Scher. 
I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Brett Shear, I am thrilled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I'm so thankful that you um, reciprocated or, or accepted my invitation to come on the show. I've been following your work for a long time on the Diet Doctor. And, you know, we were saying in the pre-chat, you are one of the few uh, cardiologists that have, um, uh, we'll say, rescinded the idea that high a high uh, or a low-fat diet, rather, is the only way to help with, uh, you know, augmenting and optimizing uh, cardiovascular health. And I, of course, there's nuance in that. I don't think that that's your stance all the time. Um, but I, but I think it's a really interesting. Um, you're really interesting because it's it's something to be said to follow your intuition even when it goes squarely in the face of your training. Um, yeah. So I, I thought we might start with your story uh, in terms of, um, you know, how you, well, maybe how you got into cardiology, why that was your uh, chosen path, chosen career. And then what were some of your clinical observations sort of once you got into, I always say, you know, getting your degree and graduating, like when I graduated from school, it was like, that's just the ticket to get into the starting. It's like just the ticket to get into the race, right? It's not that you're finished, right. you're just beginning. So what were some of the clinical observations that you noticed once you were kind of on the ground uh, with patients? Yeah, yeah. So it's a long, windy road. But basically, the, the thing that that really attracted me to cardiology when I was in medical school and residency was just the uh, the combination of care that you can give, right? You can follow people in your clinic for, you know, years and managing their lipids and their blood pressure and their cardiovascular risk factors. Then you can manage people in the hospital when they're really sick and need acute intervention. Then you can do procedures and like even small surgeries, whether it's um, the angiograms or the transesophageal echoes. And then there's like a little ER component to it with the, with the acute heart attack. So it was like, it really spanned kind of all aspects of medicine where you can impact people's lives and improve people's lives in multiple different areas. Then as I transitioned into cardiology, I realized I really wanted to focus on prevention. Um, and my cardiology fellowship was a combined preventive and general fellowship. Of course, preventive cardiology fellowships are usually based in the low-fat movement. It was an Ornish style um, program that I was involved in. And then I got out in the real world and so to speak, and you know, got the real, real job. And um, it didn't take long for me to be really kind of disillusioned and disappointed with the impact I was having with my patients. Uh, um, and you know, there's the old saying, like how many times can you write in someone's chart lifestyle interventions did not have the effect we wanted, or a patient was not able to adhere to lifestyle interventions. And 
So the end result is out comes the prescription pad, writing the prescription. The next part though, was seeing these patients as sort of like a revolving door in the hospital. They come in, they get their stent, they get out. A year later, they come in, they get another stent, they go out. A year later, they come in with congestive heart failure, you tune them up, put them on medications, they go out. And it was just like this revolving door and it, it happened far too often. And, and so I really started to have to start racking my brains. Like, how can I have the impact I want to have? Because it's clearly not working the way I am. And I do want to say, though, look, cardiology and medicine in general is phenomenal. If someone comes in with a heart attack, someone comes in needing a valve replacement, you have an acute issue that you need to be fixed, the technology, the, the personnel, the doctors, I mean, it's incredible um, what they can do. So that part, I'm still in awe. In, but the prevention part just leaves so much to be desired. So it really was sort of like what I could do, what could I do better? So I started uh, a company called Boundless Health, which was like a boutique wellness center that um, I thought if I just spent more time with these people and I worked with a health coach um, so we could spend, you know, hours with them working on their exercise, working on their nutrition, working on their whole lifestyle. And just as luck would have it, the health coach I was working with, who's this amazing guy, he, he was very knowledgeable about ketogenic diets. So for some of our trickier patients, he suggested, why don't we start this guy on a keto diet? And of course, my first reaction, given my training was, what are you crazy? I don't want to kill the guy. You know, that was how I was trained. Um, but luckily he pushed back and said, well, have you like read about it? Have you done research about it? And I said, well, no, I'm just sort of being a parrot and saying what I was taught. So I dug into it and boy, was I surprised. Like there was actual scientific studies and research about the metabolic benefits of ketogenic diets going back to the early 2000s, you know, and, and of course, Dr. Finney and Volek, they've been researching it and publishing about it for, for decades. And so all of a sudden I was like, why have I not heard about this other side of, of this diet? And so then just went even deeper, tried it on myself, and then started trying it on, on a number of patients, just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And all of a sudden, I was all in. And again, not that a keto diet is the one diet for everybody, right? We, we, we fell into that trap by saying the low fat diet is the one diet for everybody. So there is no one diet for everybody. But the key, a ketogenic diet or versions of a low carb diet need to be in every nutritionist and every doctor's toolkit as an option for the right setting. And so that really became my mission to make that as to make that to shout that from the rooftops as best I could. So I, I started the low carb cardiologist podcast, then was fortunate enough to, to meet up with the crew at Diet Doctor with Dr. Andreas and his team, and then joined Diet Doctor to run the Diet Doctor podcast and now kind of help with the with the content there as the medical director. Um yeah, and, and so the rest is sort of taken off. Now the one sort of pushback against low carbon keto diets tends to be lipids, which so puts me in a very interesting position, um, which I guess we can get into the details, but it definitely do, does go against a lot of the training. But I'm just, I'm not just sitting here saying, I believe it's not a problem. I am like focused on the literature, on the science, on the clinical experience to try and educate people about a different way to sort of see it. So yeah, that's my, that's my journey up to this point. Well, I think what you're describing is really the true definition of evidence-based medicine. Um, a lot of times when we hear about this is not evidence-based, that lacks evidence, what we're what we're really referring to sometimes is just what exists in the literature. And while I think that that's important, there's almost like a Venn diagram in terms of what evidence-based is. One is like the available literature, which you said there's already kind of a robust amount uh, of uh, information that will denote some of the benefits that the ketogenic ha diet has on lipids, on metabolism, on brain health, on longevity, all those things. And you're also 
in the trenches in a way with your clinical uh, results with some of the patients that didn't respond to some of these other interventions that you had tried initially, which was very likely a low fat approach. Patient wasn't able to adhere to it. And then with some of these tweaks, maybe switching the macros around so that the let's say the majority of their calories might've been fat. And then we pulled back on the carbohydrates. The, those clinical, that clinical evidence albeit it's not an RCT, it's not a Mendelian, you know, it's not Mendelian randomization. However, it's still evidence. So I think that, and then as you accrue that, I mean, that's at least that's been my experience as a clinician. It's like, I've never written a paper, but I do have thousands of case studies that have been able to predictively for, at least for me in my practice, be able to, you know, you look, you, and we're going to talk about labs and stuff today as well, when you're doing it in the, with context, when you have, you know, data like LP little a and total cholesterol and LDLs and particle numbers and all those things, you, there is a, uh, there is a pattern that does emerge. And I think that, yeah. um, and maybe my question to you here in that long, you know, long ramble is what, what would you like other cardiologists and maybe just, uh, you know, primary care physicians to know about the ketogenic diet? Yeah. I mean, I think before talking about the ketogenic diet, I think we have to talk about metabolic health and the importance of metabolic health. And that metabolic health is cardiovascular health. It's not one or the other. They are one and the same. Metabolic health is mental health. Metabolic health is, you know, autoimmunity, right? It's, it's, it's linked to so many different aspects. So the, the focus, I think, really needs to be on metabolic health. And then once you, once you acknowledge that, then you can see the effect a ketogenic diet has on metabolic health. And it is better than anything we have. I mean, it's better than any nutritional intervention. It's better than any drug in terms of lowering insulin and lowering glucose and improving triglycerides and HDL and the size of your LDL particles, the things that are related to metabolic health and blood pressure, like the one-stop shop for all that. Um, I think it's, it's not that it's the only way to achieve those goals, but I think from a lifestyle intervention, it is the most effective. So the first is recognizing the importance of metabolic health. And the second is recognizing the impact ketogenic diets have on metabolic health. And once you can put those two together, I mean, there's no turning back because that's when it needs to be an option, at least an option for just about everybody you see who is overweight or has type 2 diabetes or prediabetes or insulin resistant or autoimmune conditions or any concerns with metabolic health. It at least needs to be an option that you can offer um, in that subset. And then know how to follow people appropriately. And that's a lot about what we do at and diet doctors providing as much information as we can so people know how to either start a diet themselves or start a patient or client on it, and then how to follow um, over time to make sure your, you know, there can be side effects, there can be changes in labs, and we have guides about all these things to help the clinicians through that process. Um, because we don't want there to be barriers for them to not start people who could benefit from a ketogenic diet or versions of low-carb diets. Yeah. And one of, one of the observations I have made, and this was relatively early when I was first starting uh, implementing the ketogenic diet with some of my patients is patients who are co-managed. So my practice, I'm, a, I'm, I'm trained as a chiropractor. So we would have patients coming in with, let's say back pain or headaches or, or whatever. And then there would be like the physical corrective care that we would do. But so often it wouldn't be just like, the, let's say the manipulation or the rehab that would provide them with the long lasting results. There also had to be like a chemical manipulation. So if the patient was always consuming, let's say processed foods, or, you know, they were consuming a very high sugar or a 
very high, uh, you know, something that was causing some of these labs to get driven up these inflammatory markers that you were mentioning the glucose or the, you know, HCRP or some of the, these other indicators of systemic inflammation, I would always implement a diet as well. Cause you can't really talk about exercise and nutrition separately. They're one and the same in the same way that we know you can't talk about the brain and the body separately. It's like, you know, one and the same. And by far, um, when I was starting the ketogenic diet with these patients as a means, you know, as a transient therapeutic intervention to try to bring down inflammation, if they had a primary ha- uh, healthcare provider, let's say a medical doctor, um, more often than not, uh, I'll say not always, but more often than not, the medical doctor would be very much against increasing fat consumption. Yeah. Uh, it would be very much kind of in the line of, you know, of your, of your school of, th- you know, of your teachings, right. From your teachers in school, it would be like very much a low fat approach. And the, the communication was always, but your total cholesterol like we're really concerned with your total cholesterol and yeah. I have landed and I would, I would love your thoughts on this um, because I'm very open to being wrong. Um, but it seems like total cholesterol, <laughs> and maybe this is an extreme statement, but it seems almost useless if it's not contextual, if yeah. I don't understand other markers, like if I don't have an LDL particle number, if I don't have, you know, let's say an HDL and a triglyceride re- uh, ratio or an LDL, like if I don't have those numbers, the total cholesterol, it, you know, as an independent predictive marker is al- almost useless. And and maybe that's yeah. an extreme. Yeah, I, sense, I agree. But, no, I yeah. don't think that's so extreme. I don't think that's so extreme. I think total cholesterol is pretty worthless, especially given all the, uh, all the different variables we can measure now. Right. So uh, of course, LDL, HDL triglycerides are all part of the standard lipid profile and they are far more useful than total cholesterol. So I, I agree, throw out total cholesterol, look at LDL, HDL triglycerides, but even better, can you get an ApoB? Can you get an LDL particle? Can you get a size of the LDL particles? Those are even better than just the standard LDL, HDL triglycerides. Of course, I want all of those together, but you are absolutely right. Um, total cholesterol should be thrown out the window. Um, and, uh, but I do want to go back to one thing you said when you were talking about evidence basing. Because you know this is such is a term that's thrown around so much, and all you have to say is, "Oh, this is evidence based." Then you're just we're supposed to say, "Oh, okay, that's all we need to know." Absolutely not. We need to know what level of evidence there is. You know what we're what are we talking about about evidence? Because you can point to it's evidence based that high fat diets are related to heart disease. That is a true statement. But then what level of evidence? Well, the worst, lowest, most unreliable level of evidence is what points to that association. So once you know more about the evidence basing, same for, I guess you could say same for total cholesterol. You could say total cholesterol is associated with cardiovascular risk. That is an evidence-based statement. But what type? Observational of big populations where you know everybody's probably got metabolic dysfunction and eating a high-fat, high-carb, you know, uh, high-calorie diet. Okay, now now we can put that into context so we know more about the evidence rather than just saying it's evidence-based. So I think that's a, a trap that a lot of people fall into. And you know, it's it's tricky because as individuals who have no science background and no medical background, like how are you supposed to be able to interpret studies and know the strength of the studies? Correct. And that's why I think we really everybody who's talking about evidence-based 
needs to be clear about the strength and the quality of that evidence. Well said. And I think the other, the other thing that I'll throw into the, into the ring here is the, and this is where I, I literally start feeling my blood boiling. When I hear people talk about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, it's like, there's yeah. no such thing. Cholesterol yeah. in and of itself First of all, if you don't have cholesterol, you're not going to be around. You don't have vitamin D, all your sex, like we have no sex hormones. Um, you know, there's no reproduction. There's no propagation of the species. Like cholesterol is very, very, very important. Mm -hmm. What we can maybe get into is uh, we'll say some of the carrier proteins that are involved in moving cholesterol around the body. And maybe even before we get there, can we, can you know, just because I'm speaking to a cardiologist, I'm going to, you know, try to download as much as your, of your wisdom as I can. What generally speaking, can you define the function that cholesterol has in the body? What does it do? Yeah. I mean, you've already alluded to a number of, I mean, cholesterol is involved in so many different things, whether it's the stability of our cell membranes or whether it's the function, the, uh, the synthesis of hormones, like um, you know, sex hormones in our body. It's, it's involved in so many different areas. It's even got some, you know, some immune function and healing function and it cholesterol is involved in just about every process in, in our body. So we, we absolutely need it. Like you said, so the, the concept of bad cholesterol is, is laughable at this point. You're absolutely right. Cause cholesterol is cholesterol. It's what is the cholesterol carried in? So cholesterol can't just float in our bloodstream. It's like putting oil on top of water. They separate and they don't mix. So instead, cholesterol has to be housed in these little these little boats or these little bubbles that will allow that are, are what we call hydrophilic. So they 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 are okay in in blood or in liquid. So they can move the cholesterol around. Where that's where you get LDL particles, you get HDL particles, you get VLDL particles. They have um, different concentrations of cholesterol and other things, whether it's triglycerides or um, other proteins, and they move the cholesterol in the body now where they go and how they function, that's what can determine whether it's for a quote unquote good purpose or a bad purpose or however you want to say it. But it's the same cholesterol just sort of being recycled among the different um, the different particles. So you're absolutely right. There's no such thing as good or bad cholesterol. There's just essential cholesterol, which it all basically is. Yeah. And, and, and so we're going to open up the Pandora's box a little bit here with, with HDL and LDL cholesterol. And I, I think the where you know, this is where I get upset with like marketing gurus because there's like somewhere, somewhere, like some marketing gurus in an executive are like high-fiving each other. Like, all right, everyone knows no bad cholesterol, like get on the statin or whatever. And I'm not mm -hmm. poo-pooing statins. Sometimes it's necessary, but I would say that, and we, we'll, we can get into, we can get into like where a statin might be justified. But I think that the bad idea, because it's like, well, how does something good for us? Like if only, if cholesterol is only good for us, then how can you have something that's so good for us that has a bad outcome? And I think, you know, what, and we're getting maybe a little bit into the weeds here, but the LDL particle, let's say that lipoprotein, um, uh, when we compare it to, it's a it's low density uh, lipoprotein versus a high density lipoprotein or HDL. The problem, of course, is that when that LDL particle, let's say, invades the uh, uh, the arterial wall, and then it dumps its cholesterol and triacylglycerides, as you mentioned, and like whatever else is there into that endothelial lining. And then we have like the macrophages and the mast cells and like all the things come. And then you have this like big inflammatory kind of response. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how 
um, or what the function is of uh, LDL and why uh, and how that can be. And we'll come back to the ketogenic diet in a moment, but like the function of yeah. LDL in the body. And then we can kind of get into how this yeah. changes with the ketogenic diet. Yeah. So I think you described it very well. I mean, the LDL circulating in the blood does nothing. I mean, it's not going to harm you in any way. In fact, it can be a delivery model either for energy or for you know different vitamins or uh, for it can be involved in immune response. Like it has jobs it can do, but just circulating in the blood does not harm you in any way. And it's, you're absolutely right. It's only when it gets into the endothelial wall on the wall of the blood vessel that it can start this cascade of events or be involved in this cascade of events. And that's sort of the big the big argument right now, you, it, you cannot really develop that um, plaque without LDL cholesterol. But if all you have is elevated LDL cholesterol with absolutely no evidence of vascular injury and a healthy endothelium and a normal blood pressure, normal blood sugar, and no inflammation, then the question is, do you still get cardiovascular disease? Um, and I think the answer is you can, but it's certainly not as prevalent as people think just by having elevated LDL cholesterol. And um, I mean, we can go down the whole rabbit hole of familial hypercholesterolemia and, and, you know, people who are born with markedly elevated LDLs, and it remains elevated their entire lives because of a gen genetic mutation. But it's, if you have what's called heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, where your LDL levels are like, you know, 200 to 250 to 280, it's not a death sentence. It's not a guarantee you're going to get cardiovascular disease. So it's clear there are other things involved. Now, what's interesting is you have homozygous, meaning both your, your alleles are affected and your LDLs are 600, 700. That's more of a sort of quote-unquote guarantee that you're going to get cardiovascular disease. So it does seem that there's a gradient, but we've set that gradient far too low, I think, for the danger zone, especially among people who don't have this genetic defect. So that's sort of like a long way around of saying like, sure, LDL is important and it matters, but maybe not quite as much as we're making it out to be, and certainly not in every situation the same way. And that's sort of my biggest message, that we need to evaluate elevated LDL differently for every individual, because we have data from big populations where there's a bell curve. And there are people on each side of the bell curve with low LDL getting heart attacks, with very high LDL not getting heart attacks. And then everybody in the middle, and who are those people? That's the general public. Well, if you look around, you don't want to be the general public, right? You don't want to, you're going to have high levels of inflammation and metabolic dysfunction. And that is the general public. So when we get outside of that population, then what data exists? Very little, very little data exists outside that population. So that's really when we do need to evaluate things um, much more individually. And that's I guess you can say that's easy to say and hard to do. If you're a doctor who's got 15 minute visits and you've got 30 visits for the day and you've got to churn them out, plus you have to you know, chart and you don't want to be at the office till 9 p.m. every night, it's hard to individualize. It's e much easier to work on the guidelines, just go by what the guidelines say, hand out a prescription. And that's unfortunately the way our medical society has gone. And it's hard to fault the individual doctors if they're a cog in the wheel of a system that's being run this way. Um, but boy, I really want patients to be to, to get better care than that and be treated as individuals. And I think LDL is the perfect example of how that needs to be. And even just saying the word LDL, because we shouldn't even be talking about LDL. We should be talking about ApoB or LDL particles, 
more than just LDL itself. But again, it's just easier to talk about LDL. So we, we, we fall into that trap far too, far too often. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. And not to throw oil on the fire, but I'm going to anyway. Do it <laughs> there's anyway. Also, <laughs> but there's also incentives, right? There's also group incentives. Like if you're writing a certain amount of, let's say, prescriptions for certain medications, there are bonuses that are allocated to some of these physicians, like these groups of physicians. So it's it's also, uh, again, you can't fault the individual doctor, but in many ways they are, as you said, a cog in the wheel. And there's this really elaborate um will say system that is not tailored to this personalized medicine. It's really like, we're just going to have a standard of care and everybody just like, you know, when you kind of, when you're traveling on a plane, you sort of almost feel like a sheep being herded. Like it's, it's the same kind of feeling where you just feel like you're sort of being herded. Uh, you're just like another number and there's not really the attention to detail that the individual, especially when it comes to lipids and the attention to detail that like the contextual nuance that you might, that that individual might require. Yeah. I think that's very well said. And I agree completely. And it, it takes time and it takes energy and it takes extra knowledge that you're not necessarily taught. Um, and yeah. so it, it can be challenging, but um, that's what I think people deserve uh, from their physician and from their healthcare. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, LDLs as they are differentiated um, by size? Uh, I know that there's been yeah. some conversation around pattern A and pattern B and like the different dif differential uh, risk of atherosclerosis, let's say, and heart disease yeah. with these different patterns. Could you describe what those are and what they mean? Yeah. So the basic way to describe pattern A and pattern B is pattern A is you have more of the larger, less dense particles and pattern B is you have more of the smaller, more dense particles. And, and one way to think about it is um, talking about cholesterol versus sort of the particles and the particle size. So the um, we, if you have more of the larger particles, you're going to have fewer particle numbers for the same level of cholesterol. And if you have more of the smaller particles, you're going to have a larger number for the same amount of cholesterol. So you could have a LDL cholesterol of 150, but if you have larger particles, you're going to have, you could have, you know, say, I don't know, uh, 1400 particles, but if you have smaller particles, it might be 2,500 particles. So that's a lot more of LDL particles running around in your system. And that has a clear higher association with cardiovascular disease. So the more small particles you have, the higher your risk. Now, the, the controversy becomes, well, then if you have mostly large particles and almost no small particles, are you then at no increased risk? So that's where the controversy goes. So it's clear the more small, small particles you have, the higher the risk, 
the more large particles you have, the lower the risk, but it's not clear that it's still zero risk. And that's so that's where the, the argument gets you. You'd be like, oh, I have large particles. I don't have to worry about it. Well, I don't know that we have solid evidence to say you don't have to worry about it, but you certainly have to worry about it a lot less. And that's putting LDL into context again, right? Is your do you have the small particles which are associated with hyperinsulinemia and high blood sugar and high levels of inflammation and metabolic dysfunction, or do you have large particles and don't have evidence of all those things? Those are two completely different scenarios where this, you know, the same LDL number should be treated completely differently in those two populations and be thought of in completely different contexts, but often is not. It's one number treated the same despite the patients being completely different. So that's where I think the, the A, B, small, large particles can really help because it's a further understanding of, of the, the, um, the metabolic condition of the patient, of the person, and, and the impact that that LDL has and where you rank it. And you know, one of my favorite studies recently came out a couple of years ago. It was an analysis of the Women's Health Initiative. And so women were enrolled in this trial and they you know, had blood work done and, and they were followed for over 20 years to see who had, um, who developed heart disease and who didn't. And then they looked back and said, okay, what were the biggest risk factors to predict um, development, development of heart disease? And LDL was on there, right? LDL had a, a risk of about 1.3, 1.4. Um, ApoB was a little better at about 1.8, 1.9. But a marker of insulin resistance was 6.8 or 6 point something. And then type 2 diabetes was like 10 point something. So they just like were magnitudes more important than the LDL. And so that's, that's again, putting it into the context of, of the metabolic condition and the overall health of the patient. And, and that's where I really think the small and large particles can really help further differentiate the, the LDL number. And so typically when you're doing a lipid panel, they're not going to tell you the size of the particle. There's a way, how do we, how does a, how does a, you know, an individual who's listening to the show, um, if they look at their lipid panel, let's say, is there like a ratio or is there some way that we might be able to infer uh, indirectly yeah. whether or not we have more of a pattern A, uh, which would be more desirable or this pattern B uh, where they're kind of smaller yeah. and denser? Yeah, so a lower triglyceride to HDL ratio can can usually, not always, but usually help predict that you're going to have the larger LDL, the more of the pattern A. If your triglyceride to HDL ratio is lower, so like below, a lot of people will say below 2.5 is normal, but I, don't know, I say below, below 1.5 is really where you want to get. Anything below one is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but if you read papers, you'll see 2.5. But again, that's for our sort of like metabolic deranged population. So definitely below 1.5 for the triglyceride to HDL ratio. You can look at a non-HDL cholesterol, which can you know also be a, be a surrogate. So, but really, there's I, I don't know. There's not much reason to not get the advanced blood test because now you can they're direct to consumer labs. You don't need your doctor to order them anymore. Now it'll be an out-of-pocket expense. It could be, you know, 50 to a couple hundred dollars, depending on what kind of labs you get. But you're, you're, the doctor is no longer the uh, gatekeeper to those labs with these direct-to-consumer labs. So you can learn more about it. Um, and if you find, you know, that your triglyceride to HDL ratio correlates very well with your particle size, okay, then maybe you can just follow your triglyceride to HDL ratio. And if you find that there is a little disconnect there, which can happen for genetic reasons, then you will want to follow those particle numbers specifically rather than relying on the surrogate of a ratio. So, I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to approach it. 
And so then the next, well, at least in my mind, it's obvious. The next obvious question in my mind uh, is that let's say you determine that you are more, you know, you look at your, uh, you know, your, your TAG to your HDL, let's say ratio, and it's above 2.5. Um, can we switch? So can we move from like a pattern uh, B to mm -hmm. a pattern A? And is there ways, let's say with the macronutrient composition of the diet, or is there ways that we can shift from B to A? Yes, absolutely. And the best way to do it is with a low carb diet. No, I think there's no question about that. Medicines don't do it well. Um, exercise can help to a degree, but it's really a low carb diet that, that can do that. Um, it is the most effective thing that I've seen in helping people lower their triglyceride to HDL ratio and shift from pattern A to pattern B. Now, some people are um, born just and have genetic makeup where they're going to have low HDL and small particles. And you, they could have perfect metabolic health on a low-carb diet and still have um, low HDL and small particles. Usually, the triglycerides will also be low in that setting, though. Um, and so I, I see a number of patients in my practice who have that kind of a makeup. And there, you know, if you just keto harder or fast or whatever, it's not, it's not going to make a difference. But that's a small subset. The vast majority of the people are going to reduce their small particles and going to improve their triglyceride to HDL ratio with low-carb diets. Now, the interesting question is if you don't, um, is there still the same association, right? If you have the genetically sort of predetermined small particles, is that the same risk as small particles in the setting of metabolic dysfunction? My guess is it's not, but we don't have that data. That's just a, that's just a guess I'm pulling out of my ear. Mm -hmm. And and so what would be, uh, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times now, someone who's metabolically healthy versus like someone who might be more deranged. What what are some of the, this is maybe our foray into labs. Um, you know, we've talked about LDL particle. What's the number that you like to see on a lab? And then what constitutes from a, you know, when we're looking at diagnostic criteria or results on a lab, what are some of the things that you like to say where you're saying, okay, like this, let's say that their glucose looks like this. Like what are some of the markers that you like to see on a lab? that would help you say yeah. with confidence, this is a metabolically healthy individual. Yeah. So one is definitely the size of your LDL particles. One is definitely your triglyceride to HDL ratio. One is your VLDL or your remnant particles, because that's a, that's um, frequently associated with metabolic dysfunction and then getting away from the lipids, you know, glucose is a big one, but fasting glucose is probably the least helpful um, really, you want to know what your glucose is during the day, your average daily glucose, your glucose excursions with meals, how high does it go and how long does it stay elevated? Hemoglobin A1C can help as like a three-month average. Um, and then, of course, insulin levels, which are something that really not enough physicians are checking. Um, fasting insulin levels are good. You know, a lot of people have heard of the craft test, which is even better, but it's a challenging test to get to order for a lab to know what to do. And um, so fasting insulin is a good place to start. Certainly. Um, you can and what's, calculate the number, what's the number that you no. like there, like five to seven ish or what, what's the yeah, number? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I don't love to just give numbers because, um, improvements is always something like I have a, a patient I see who's fasting insulin always sits around 15 and that's phenomenal because he started at like 50. Right. And, and no right. matter what we do, we can't really get you. We haven't been able to get it below 15, but I don't care because everything else has fallen in line. Right. Um, so that's an example, but I think if you're going to give a number like, you know, below eight, below five, somewhere in that range, um, is where you want your fasting. But 
I, I do want to put a caveat there. It really does have to do with where you're starting from um, in terms of where you want to go. So I wouldn't want someone to say like, ah, oh, I only got it down to like 12. This is terrible. Like, no, if you started at 40, getting it down to 12 is fantastic. And especially if your other markers are moving accordingly. Yeah. I can't, I don't think I've ever seen an insulin at 40. I think I would fall mm-hmm. over if I saw that. <laughs> oh boy. They're out there. Trust oh me. They are out there. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So let's talk about the ketogenic diet in this context. So one of the things that I've noticed is when someone goes from, it can be a standard American diet, it can be whatever diet and they start keto. It has been my observation that some of these labs transiently do get worse. So I have seen, let's say LDL numbers get worse. T- total cholesterol uh, tends to get worse. And then for, you know, and maybe we can, we can get into like some of the mechanistic explanation as to why, but I see around the six to nine month mark, things tend to just kind of come back to at least baseline, but usually there's a marked improvement in let's say HDL numbers. And then the ratios that we've been talking about. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about some of the changes that we see when we're first starting a low carbohydrate diet, specifically sure. a ketogenic diet, uh, and then maybe an explanation as to why, like that's just been my clinical observation, but I suspect you have, yeah. you have a, some insight onto why that's happening. Yeah. So the, the things that are, are almost universally seen are reduction in triglycerides, a, a, an increase in the HDL, a reduction in the VLDL, an improvement in the size of the particles. Like that's almost universally seen when people start a low carb diet. The, I guess the, you could say the tricky part is what happens to LDL. And, and you're absolutely right. And there's a, a couple of studies to show this, that it can transiently go up in a number of people over the first six months and then come back down over the next six months to baseline. So when you look at um, studies that enrolled people who were overweight, starting a keto diet for weight loss, or who had type 2 diabetes and starting a keto diet for, um, for treatment of their diabetes, on average, there is zero rise in LDL. On average. Now, if you look at the individuals, of course, there's some have, have an increase, some have a decrease. But I think that's the most important thing for people to realize, especially for clinicians, or if, if you're a patient, your doctor tells you, you, can, you can't start a keto diet because it's going to, you know, your LDL is going to skyrocket. And you'd be like, well, hang on a second. You actually look at the evidence, on average, it doesn't. Okay. But now we spend a lot of time focusing on this subset where it does. And rightly so, because that's what makes most doctors nervous. But because that's what gets the most attention, the most oxygen, the most airtime, whatever you want to say, a lot of people just assume it's a given that your LDL is going to go up or your ApoB is going to go up. And absolutely not. And actually, Verda Health did a did a, a great study that they published um, where the LDL went up 10% on average, but the ApoB did not change at all. And we have to recognize that ApoB is the better marker than LDL. So again, if your LDL goes up 10%, but your ApoB doesn't change, I don't care about your LDL because that ApoB is the better marker. And the way they did that is because the particles got bigger. You had fewer small particles, you, you didn't have your VLDLs went down and those all, you know, that makes a difference for ApoB. So that and it's also caveat. the lifetime exposure too. Like I, and this is what I try to talk to patients about. It's like, let's say, let's just, let's just assume that your LDL is going to get worse over the next year, let's say yeah. in the context of your life, it's lifetime exposure that we're actually concerned right. with, not the year where it went up or the, even two years where it was elevated. Right. Right. And that's something I think is really interesting. If you walk into a doctor's office and have an elevated LDL, they'll throw terms around, like you're at high risk of a heart attack ticking time bomb. You have to lower this right now. 
No, <laughs> it's like you're saying, we're talking about 10 to 20 year risk. We're not talking about next week, next month for most people. Um, so I, I do think that's kind of interesting. And, and so, um, you know, when trying to decide what to do about LDL, um, that definitely has something in, to do with it, you know, that the time of exposure, but also again, going deeper and uh, about the ApoB, but then the degree of elevation is really important. So I mentioned a 10% increase. Okay. No big deal, especially if your ApoB is normal. Some people will see like a 50% increase. Some people will see a hundred or 200% increase. So those are all sort of different buckets to put somebody into. Um, so there's sort of like the, the standard response, then there's the hyper responder, then there's what's been termed the lean mass hyper responder. And I think those are the three buckets. Sometimes when I give a talk, I'll show a, you know, three Starbucks cups, you know, the, the tall, the grande or the vente. So which one are you in, in terms of your LDL elevation? Because I think it makes a difference in how we see it. Yeah. And again, to simplify the small elevation, which usually has no rise in ApoB, no problem. Um, the medium elevation, which may have, which will usually come with a rise in ApoB. That, um, again, put it into context. And um, and even for the large rise, which will definitely have a rise in ApoB and LDL particle numbers, put it into context, time frame it, and then you can you can decide if you want to make certain changes in the diet, just like adding 20, 30 grams of carbs can make a huge difference. Adding some fiber can make a big difference. You know, you can make small changes like that to adjust it or do you maybe start a medication or a supplement or do you change the diet? Those are all options, but it should not be a re knee jerk reaction that this is obviously and immediately harmful. That, that sort of, I disagree with. Now you're asking about mechanism. The mechanisms are still hypothetical at this point, but there are a couple, you know, one is um, on lower carb diets with lower insulin, you can downregulate LDL receptors on the liver. So that's one mechanism. Um, another mechanism that's been popularized by, um, by Dave Feldman at cholesterolcode.com and who's actually published some papers on it. And he's really sort of, um, done a great job getting out there in the literature is, is the, um, energy delivery model where, um, you're using triglycerides for fuel. Um, and this has to do, uh, as he describes it, mostly in the lean mass hyperresponder, where we're really dependent on triglycerides for fuel. So we have to create lots of VLDLs from the liver because they have a ton of triglycerides and not much cholesterol. Then they go around in the circulation and drop off the triglycerides basically for energy. And as they do that, they sort of transition into LDLs. So that's the natural life cycle of a VLDL as it transitions into an LDL. So if you have more VLDLs dropping off the triglycerides, you're going to end up with more LDLs. So that's another um, potential mechanism of why this happens, um, which then can lead to potential ways uh, around it. But but the you know the unanswered question is is this harmful? Is it in the same category as elevated LDL? That's not because of a diet in the setting of metabolic dysfunction. And again, my guess is it's probably not. But the hard part is individualizing it for the patient. And then when we talk about you know the venti cup and the I don't go to Starbucks often, but I know venti. So <laughs> venti grande, and then I don't remember the last one. Um, if we were if we were to talk about hyper responders, let's say, so you talked about the lean mass hyper responders. What percentage of the population would you estimate that where we have people who do in fact, um, you know, my my again clinical very basic observation has been somewhere around eighty to ninety percent of people who go on a ketogenic diet are going to be just fine. But it is in that kind of ten, maybe twenty percent on the high end where we do see 
further derangement that does not seem to be corrected? Is that in line with the research or in what you see in practice as well? Yeah, I guess it really depends on your patient population. So if you have a practice of ketogenic athletes, um, it's going to be 80% who have a rise in LDL, right? And if you have a practice, uh, a weight management practice where everybody has obesity or overweight that you see, it's going to be five or 10% maybe or something like that. Right. So it, it depends on the, on the population. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you, do you notice any sex differences between men and women and their response on the ketogenic diet long-term? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think the general experience is that men tend to lose weight faster and, and probably lose more weight than women do, which just infuriates women, especially when it's like a husband <laughs> yes, wife starting at the same time. Like that's yes. the worst, the husband wife at the same time. And the, yeah. the husband seeing much better results than the wife. Um, but, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work for women. I mean, it certainly does. And actually I had a really interesting interview with um, Dr. Lucia Aronica, who's a, um, a researcher at Stanford. And she did an evaluation of this diet fits trial, which, which they ran at Stanford. And because there was a difference, a gender difference that women didn't respond as well as men. But what she was able to find is the, the compliance was simply lower. The adherence was lower. And, you know, stereotypically, who's going to sit down and order like a steak and veggies or who's going to have, you know, a salad with very little protein and, you know, maybe seed oil dressing or whatever. You know, the woman is stereotypically is more likely to do that. And the man's more likely to have the, the, the steak. And, and so maybe that has something to do with um, their hunger, their satiety, their adherence to the diet. So I thought that was a really interesting interview that that there are, there are cultural stereotypes that we're sort of fighting against that may play into it. But but assuming even that adherence is the same, you still can definitely see some differences in the the speed of weight loss and the um, and the absolute amount of weight loss between genders. Yeah, it's so interesting that you talk about the steak because there's something. Uh, we'll say just again, painting, as you said, painting broad strokes here, yeah. but it, there is a similar resistance with eating steak. It's like man, fire, meat, you know, it's like, we sort of like, you know, uh, ascribe this like phenotypically male with steak, you know, and the same is actually true with lifting weights. This is another thing that I talk yeah. about on the podcast as well. It's like lift heavy weights. And like our, my population, the community that listens to this show is primarily a woman. She's somewhere between 35 and 55. Maybe she's in perimenopause looking like things that worked in her 40s, like it, that worked in her 20s, no longer working in her 40s, which is where we introduce the ketogenic diet for women. And this, I get the same blowback. I get the same resistance with you have to eat meat, let's say, or you have to have more protein and lifting heavy weights. It's like, oh, I don't want to get yeah. bulky. Right. And it's like that right. the, when we talk about, you know, you've been talking about metabolic health. Those are like the two single biggest improvements that you can make in your metabolic health, your longevity and your health span is by putting on more lean muscle mass, specifically muscle, you know, as you're, yeah. you know, as you're moving from a high estrogen, high testosterone environment, premenopausal, and then, you know, kind of going into a lower anabolic hormone environment in menopause. I think that's one of the single biggest things that you can do. And there's that same, uh, resistance around that. It's, it's just, mm -hmm. it's very interesting. Like meat and weights is like men and it's not something that's applicable for women when it's so is applicable for women as well. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent and probably even more applicable for women because women have that sort of dramatic change in sex hormones or, or in estrogen and with hitting menopause or men, it's a little more gradual, but when women have that more dramatic change, that's when 
resistance training becomes that much more important. I mean, it's, it's important throughout the whole life cycle, but I think that's where it becomes even that much more important because that's when body composition is, is a little bit more challenging to, to maintain and improve. And you can't do it without protein and without resistance training. And, and those are the two things that stereotypically, you're absolutely right, that women kind of shy away from if we're painting broad, broad strokes, where hopefully messages and examples like, like yours are really going to help uh, start to change that. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I had uh, Dominic D'Agostino, who I know you know well uh, on yeah, the show. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's f- just phenomenal. We had uh, his his episode is one of our top 10, like did, has done so well. And we were talking about thyroid function and the ketogenic diet. And he it, it was, and I've seen this as well. And he observed that women who are on a ketogenic, like a kind of a strict ketogenic, classic ketogenic protocol, where it's like 70% or above, you know, fat, and then, you know, kind of moderate protein about let's say 20, 25%, and then like the fillers carbs. If you're on that kind of macronutrient split for a long time, it appears like women tend to be a bit more sensitive to uh, you know, the thought that the integrity of their thyroid function, like specifically like, you know, upregulating reverse T3. Uh, we see, you know, with hypothyroidism, more women tend to be hypothyroid to begin with, which is of course, you know, just going to decrease the catabolism of cholesterol into bile anyway, you know, so there's kind of this like thing that's already happening. And, and one of the things that I like to do for women who've been in, uh, let's say doing a key, like a classic ketogenic diet, therapeutic metabolic intervention, is then to up the protein. So to kind of play around with the fat protein, you know, instead of going like 70, 20, 10, let's say, maybe it's like 40, 40, 20, you know, maybe, or something like that, 50, 30, 20, something like that, where it's like 50% or 40% fat, 30 or 40% protein. And then like the fill again is, is carbohydrates, but the carbs are still relatively low, but it seems yeah. like that increase in protein to your point around like prioritizing protein. It seems like that also does seem to be the, the thing that helps with the female response, like that thyroid, that attenuation in function in their thyroid. Yeah, yeah, I do think that's really interesting. And it does appear that there's um, a decreased conversion rate of T4 to T3 on a keto diet. The question is, what are the clinical implications of that? I don't know how well that's been studied to see if there are clinical implications, but it's still an interesting observation. And I think you're right that by adding more protein and, and altering the diet in certain ways, you can probably get around that if it is um, an issue. But yeah, it's one of the things where, you know, um, you do have to not just start the keto diet and forget it, right? You just like anything you should, it's an intervention for a purpose. So one, you want to make sure you're having the right beneficial effects and make sure you're not having any, any um, untoward effects that you, that you want to prevent. So and I think it is um, important to to continue to follow your health no matter what you're doing. That's a simple statement. One of the uh, other observations I'd love your thoughts on, uh, and this is more more with my men, but I saw it. I, I focus more on on women now. But when I was seeing uh, both men and women, I would notice that if they had been on the ketogenic diet for a long time, like a year, two years. They also had a, they were also a little more insulin resistant. Like if we did like mm-hmm. a glucose tolerance test, let's say yeah. like an oral glucose tolerance test, we gave them that, like, you know, that really gross, you know, like 75 grams that of the, whatever stuff. the glucose. Yeah. St- yeah, exactly. Uh, it, yeah. they, ha- they, they performed really poorly. Whereas if I had mm. given them, let's say a carbohydrate bolus prior to the test, they, they performed better. Oh, absolutely. So that is, that's well, well observed. And, um, and written about and understood that that's the case. And um, 
the, I think the interesting thing is how long do you have to like quote unquote carb up before a glucose tolerance test? You know, the the I guess the common narrative is three days, but there was a study that came out maybe like a year ago that suggested actually two weeks. Um, so it's somewhere in that three day to two week period where you, if you want to pass your glucose tolerance test, you need to carb up. So then the question is, well, why is that? Like, are you insulin resistant or are you not? And it's more of like a temporary insulin resistance because your your body hasn't needed to respond to that amount of glucose or sugar in so long that it's 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 I don't know the it, what's the word um, amorphizing or whatever like your pancreas goes to sleep so to speak or yeah, or yeah. isn't quite as responsive because it's been so long. But as you slowly ramp up your carbs, it wakes right up, and usually then you aren't insulin resistant. So. I, I don't like calling it insulin resistance because insulin resistance suggests like a chronic condition with how you are. But if you're not eating the carbs, you know, it, it doesn't matter, right? It, if you're not testing yourself with, with carbohydrates, then it doesn't matter if, you're, if your pancreas is slow to respond. Now, where this can come into play though is, is those quote unquote cheat days. Um, if you have sort of regular cheat days, you know, once every week, once every two weeks, you're not giving your body the chance to adapt and be able to respond quickly to them, especially if they're high carb cheat days. So you may have higher rises, longer durations of your, of your, um, of your glucose and your insulin. But the harder question is at what point does it become detrimental? Right? Cause again, yeah. one day a month, probably not a problem. One day and then a week, how do you structure them? It, like how do you, is it like a carb up day you're talking about, or are you just doing like a Dom, Dom talked about, um, I don't know the correct term, but it was like a car. It was like a ketogenic refeed where he just gave himself more calories still, still, still sticking to the macros. Is that what you mean when you're talking about a cheat day? Um, no, I'm talking about actually increasing carbs. So, oh, actual okay, so carb. like a carb. Yeah, so, okay. Cause and, and not like a purposeful cheat day, right? Like people, Look, nobody's perfect, right? So if, if somebody does slip up sort of on a regular basis and hit the chocolate more than they wanted to, or, you know, sample the dessert and get into the ice cream. And yeah. the, the point I'm trying to make is on a ketogenic diet, that could be more of a concern because of this lack of response from the pancreas when you're consistently in a ketogenic diet. So that's where, you know, if, if you should somebody squat, is you should go and squat. <laughs> you should, <laughs> right, right. you should have this dessert and then go and squat. Sugar. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Make sure you're soak, soaking up that glucose in some other way. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. That's yeah. a great point. Or, or is that the type of person who maybe doesn't need to be on a ketogenic diet and instead a, a 75 gram carb diet consistently focusing on high quality, high fiber carbs may offset that. So then when you, if you um, continue to have those days where you slip up or attempted, you may not have the same dramatic rise. This is all sort of hypothesis using the data that's out there and trying to bring it together. But that's something to consider with some people um, if they're having a harder time sticking to and being adherent to a, a keto diet. And where do you fall on fasting? I know that there's just so mm -hmm. many people talking about fasting now. Um, I want to maybe reference uh, Dr. Ethan Weiss's uh uh, study that he did, I guess it was like a year or two ago now, yeah. uh, where he was looking to see whether or not the intermittent fasting group would spontaneously decrease their caloric consumption. Um, yeah. So where, where do you fall? More. They actually ate more, right? Um, which I thought was fascinating. So, so you know, my my thoughts on fasting have definitely evolved as new science has come out. Um, I was a huge proponent of it in the beginning. 
Um, and then as I got more clinical experience with it, and as the science came out, it's clear there are subsets of the population it works very well for. And there are subsets of the population where it works terribly for. And, and I think that's the key is, is understanding where somebody lies on that spectrum. Because if you can, you know, time restrict eat, eat two meals a day and um, use it as a way to decrease your calories without increasing your hunger and still focus on the quality of calories, uh, then that's great. But some people actually either have increased hunger or psychologically they feel the, the need to eat more. Um, and end up binging or end up um, making worse food choices or end up eating more calories, boom, that person should not be fasting or doing time-restricted eating. There's nothing wrong with three meals a day, right? Fasting got so popular that all of a sudden three meals a day was like terrible. How can you possibly eat three meals a day? But I think we have to realize if we're fasting 12 hours from dinner to breakfast, that's pretty darn good. Um, that's a great place to start. And actually there was one study years ago about um, women with breast cancer and those who fasted 13 hours a day um, had better survival and, and better outcomes than those who didn't. That, that's not a hard ask, right? It was that's like a 65 percent decrease in recurrence of breast cancer. I know the study you're talking about. I'll, yeah, I'll put in the show was, notes for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it was observational, so it, but it was still pretty impressive. Um, but you know, that's not a hard ask, and that's very different than 18 or 20 hours every day, which is sort of what's commonly talked about on 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 social media that you think you have to get to that level to be healthy. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, now it can be a great tool for a lot of people. Um, but that's very different than saying, yes, it's required for health and for healthy weight loss and is good for everybody. Totally different, totally different. So, so studies like Dr. Rice's study has really helped bring that to my attention that, yeah, it's not just that I'm seeing this in some of my patients. This is actually in the literature now that people increase their food intake um, with time restricted eating. So really interesting. And he, I think he was shocked by it. Like I had interviewed him for the show and he was like, when is the show coming out? Cause we're about to publish this. We're about to publish this paper. And he had found intermittent fasting to be very helpful for his weight loss and his whole, whole journey. So you could arguably say that the researcher, you know, had a bias going in, you know, hoping sure. that he would be able to see this, you know, uh, this uh, phenomenon that he experienced his N of one sort of replicated with the, I can't remember the sample size it was like a hundred something, 115 people. So it's like a good N. Yeah. Um, and he said that he was so shocked by the results that he just he stopped was. intermittent fasting. Like he was, you know, pushing him. I can't remember what he was doing before. It might've been 16, eight, something. Yeah. But here's yeah. the thing. So like we were talking about to circle back to how we sort of started this conversation, you can say it's evidence-based that time-restricted eating doesn't work. Okay. That's sort of a true statement based on that one study. Yeah. Or you could say, all right, in the setting where you're not giving any specific dietary advice and you're just telling someone to fast and they end up increasing their calories, okay, that's not the right setting for them. But that's very different than saying time-restricted eating doesn't work. Those are, you know, very same study, but two very different interpretations. One's not so helpful in my opinion, and one is helpful in my opinion in terms of the way you interpret those studies. And I'm so happy to hear that you, uh, you know, you, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something like, you know, my stance on fasting has changed over time because that's something that I am a hundred percent aligned uh, with you. I used to think like you, we had to fast for 18 hours. It was 16, eight or bust, you know, like that was the goal that you had to kind of work your way up to. And then to your point around some people 
hit that hunger point much earlier than others. Like, you know, there's also gender differences with like leptin resistance and being able to, uh, you know, and then I was noticing with my females that their sleep was becoming disturbed, like, especially when they were doing that 18 hour, 20 hour, the OMADs, you know, all of that, we were starting to see some sleep disruptions in these women as well, not to mention, you know, menstrual cycle changes, um, which we, right. you know, we can or cannot get into. And so I, I've, I've softened from the 16, eight or bust to what is easy for me to do every day forever that I don't mm-hmm. even have to think about it. And that yeah. 12, 12, you know, maybe for a woman, if she's in her follicular phase, let's say where she can be a bit more aggressive, maybe 10, 14, like maybe, you know, that's okay. But I, it should be so easy that you're not planning it. Like that's the key for some of these tools that we're talking about today, because the best diet for you, like I, you know, I have a bias. I do think that the ketogenic diet is really great for metabolic health and healing, but the best diet for, for anyone who's listening is the one that you can stick to. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Yeah. And, and when it comes to time restricted eating, the interesting thing is a lot of people who start a ketogenic diet naturally fall into that pattern you know like all of a sudden you're like i'm not hungry i don't need to eat breakfast because i'm not hungry and that's great when it happens like naturally like that because it's easy to stick with and long term as opposed to like oh it's only 10 o'clock i gotta make it two more hours before i can eat because of my my eating window like no that's i don't think that's the right way to do it yeah so i think it's very well said the way you phrase that and so if people want, um, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up our, our conversation, if people want to find out more about you, uh, I would love for you to plug, uh, you know, the diet doctor and where mm-hmm. are you in private practice? Are you still accepting patients? Like, tell us where people can find you online uh, and in yeah. person. Yeah. So to find all my content that I put out is that is at diet doctor. Um, so dietdoctor.com and also the diet doctor YouTube channel. I do, you know, two to three videos per week, usually about, you know, breaking studies or different topics. And then plus my podcast is there. Um, and then all the educational guides and clinical content on, on diet doctor. And then for me as a, as a clinician, I do still see patients in a, in a virtual practice, um, lowcarbcardiologist.com is where you can find me. Um, I'm licensed in, I think seven States right now. So if someone's in one of those States, they can, they can certainly reach out. Um, you can find more information at lowcarbcardiologist.com. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to plug it all. Yeah, no problem. I'll make sure that all of those are clickable links in the show notes. And uh, I just wanted to thank you. I was so thrilled when you accepted my invitation. It's always, uh, you know, the breadth of content that you've put out over the long period of time that you have uh, really has stood the test of time. And I think that this is going to be so valuable to all of my listeners. So thank you so much for making the time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on and giving me the opportunity to to talk about this. It was really fun. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. 
The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary health care provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 